Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Hello, guys. Welcome to a new episode of What's New in History. Future is a mystery, but what's new in history? There's a few articles that I'm going to put together here into um, an episode on a topic I've been interested in for a long time. I talk about it sometimes in the regular podcast about the way back, about the dawn of history, the beginnings of civilization. I've heard this era and this time and this place, you know, it's called as the zero point of history. And we're starting to learn a lot of new things about this. We've been starting to learn about them. People have, people, I should say, archaeologists and historians, some, you know, have been challenging the standard wisdom, you know, and they were like, ah, that's a little crazy. And maybe it wasn't, you know, agreed upon. And sure, it's still not completely agreed upon, but we're really starting to turn a corner and find some really new things. It's hard to say, oh, that's not true. You're just crazy. Right. So, and you know, Maybe in a few years, we'll have another episode that changes all this. And maybe some of you people, and maybe some people you know, would disagree with me. And if you do, or you know someone who does, then let me know. Let me know what you think. I want to hear from you guys. I want to hear about, you know, what you think about this. Sometimes I feel like, <laughs> I always think about um, Mother Teresa. After she died, they found her diary. And she said, she had written in it that up to Jesus. And she said, Jesus, I never hear from you. I pray from you all the, all the time, and I just feel so lonely, and I never hear back from you. Well, that's understandable in my opinion. But for you guys, there's a few of you that could probably shoot me an email, tell me I'm wrong, tell me I'm right, tell me what you like, tell me what you don't like. I'd really appreciate it. So, and if you know someone who does, who thinks it's wrong too, and you say, hey, my brother disagrees with you. But there's one caveat. If you if they're going to sell you that, tell you that aliens or Atlanteans involved in this, I'm definitely not interested because this topic I believe has a little bit of a Atlantean mystery in it from our friend Mr. Hancock, who is a great entertainer, but that's about it. So, like I said, we're going to go way back and we're going to go to the cradle of civilization, which today is going to be Anatolia, modern Turkey, and we might talk about the Levant a little. And it's kind of Mesopotamia. It's kind of the Fertile Crescent. And yes, people did come out, the modern humans did come out of Africa, stopped surely in Egypt and lingered around. And even Arabia was a grassland at this time that we're talking about. But I don't want to digress too much. Today's topic is Anatolia, which is, like I said, modern day Turkey. And the timeline is around 10,000 B.C., which is on the borderline of what historians would call the Paleolithic era and the Neolithic era. And if you look this up, you'll find different ideas of when the Neolithic starts and ends. And these discoveries are going to blur those lines, which are already blurred a little more, maybe a lot more. It's funny, when I was doing the research for this, I find a lot of things and I get down rabbit holes and I find funny stuff. 
And I found one thing. I think I was looking like, when is the Paleolithic era or something like that? And I found like, it's probably high school, it could be early college, like test, you know, sort of like a little worksheet. I'm going to read it here because this is why, this is what the books say. You know, this is what with the standard wisdom that we learn. And uh, here we go. The Paleolithic era, or the Old Stone Age, is a period of prehistory from about 2.6 million years ago to around 10,000 years ago. That's that's a pretty long time. <laughs> uh, the Neolithic era, or New Stone Age, began around 10,000 B.C. and ended between 4,500 and 2,000 B.C. in various parts of the world. Paleolithic humans lived in a nomadic lifestyle in small groups. They used primitive stone tools, and their survival depended heavily on their environment and climate. Neolithic humans discovered agriculture and domesticated animals, which allowed them to settle down in one area. Lifestyle Paleolithic people were hunter-gatherers. They were nomads who lived in tribes and relied on hunting, fishing, and gathering wild fruits. They hunted animals like bison, mammoths, bears, and deer. Meat was a source of food and animal hide was used to make clothes. They lived in clans of 20 to 30 people in caves, outdoors, or in cabins made of tree branches and animal skin. The Neolithic era began when humans discovered agriculture and raising cattle, parentheses, domestication, which allowed them to no longer have a nomadic lifestyle. They were able to settle in fertile areas with a predictable climate, usually near river basins. Rice and wheat were the first plants they cultivated, and the first animals to be domesticated were dogs, goats, sheep, oxen, and horses. End quote. So like it says there, generally we think the Neolithic era to be the advent of agriculture, the invention, you know, the beginning of agriculture. That's when you settle down. Once you stop looking for wild berries, then you figured out, wow, I could just plant a seed and Amazing. 2.6 million years of picking seeds and no one ever knew how to plant a seed, right? My history books always put that sometime around 9,000, 8,000 BC. And we're not going to get into Catahoyuk, but like Catahoyuk is a farming community around 8,000, 7,500 BC. And of course, Anatolia, which is where a lot of this exciting stuff is happening. They're true farmers. Okay, but we're back to 10,000 BC. So they make it like, you know, they were like cavemen, and all of a sudden, before you know it, poof, there you go. Only a few short years, like maybe four or 5,000 short years, and you start getting cities and true civilization. It's funny how, like, of course, in this time of history, things move slower. But, you know, 4,000 years is a long time. <laughs> so, and like I said, a lot of scholars are starting to question this narrative, and we're backing it up with evidence, and this episode here, we have some evidence. Like I mentioned before, my if I didn't mention it, I mentioned it in my Fan of History podcast. One of my new favorite big sweep of history books is called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, and it's by David Graeber and David Wengro. Unfortunately, Mr. Graeber died like right after the book was published, but David Wengro, he's been making the media rounds for the last year or so, and you may have seen him or maybe even read the book. I highly recommend it, and I, um, I'll i put some links to some of his uh, interviews. And I could put a link, I guess, to the book in the um, show notes. I'll give you a lot of links. So these guys, um, Wengro and Graber, they go after the idea that before farming, people were just like 
a bunch of dumb cavemen living in small bands, you know, for thousands of years until farming just changed everything. And if you have read this book, I think you're going to be interested in these new finds. And we're going to talk about a few sites and a few articles for this episode. And the time frame again, 10,000 BC, Anatolia, modern day Turkey. One of the best sites, uh, best known sites you may have heard of is called Gobekli Tepe. It was excavated in a long time ago. I think it was the 90s. And it's been being excavated. But the thing is, they only excavated parts of it. And for years, they always just thought it, this was just like a ritualistic um, settlement. You know, that these hunter-gatherers would go to Gobekli, you know, they, I guess they would forage all the time, you know, their little bands, and then maybe once a year go to Gobekli Tepe and, you know, do some worship stuff. This is what we're, you know, saying is eh, maybe that's not what really happened. Also, the word tepe, you'll hear that a lot, is um, it's a Turkish word that means artificial mound or hill. It's kind of like the word tel, like in Syria and in the Levant slash modern-day Israel. You'll say like tell this, tell that. That means it's like a mound. And basically, these things are all over the place. And people didn't, they didn't used to know what they were. But now we know they're archaeological gold because they're just like settlements and cities even. And things are built and built on top of each other. And then they come, you know, they end up having a mound. And then archaeologists start digging through it. And then, you know, it's great. So after um, the find of Gobekli Tepe, they've now found about 15 more sites around the same area. I've even heard it called a constellation of sites, which is a real good way to put it. There's these, little, there's these sites all over the place. And it's now called Tas Tepler, which it means stone hills. And they are all characterized by gathering places featuring um, monumental stylized depictions of people and animals, and as well as pillars, which many say have a decidedly phallic aspect. I think you guys know what phallic means. If you don't, I'll just say it, penises. And maybe they're just pillars, but there's penises carved on many of them. And and we're going to talk about another story, which is absolutely phallic. So I guess people have been drawing dicks on things for thousands of years since the dawn of civilization. It's just a thing. We're going to talk about Gobekli Tepe. But first, we're going to talk about a less well-known site, which is becoming more well-known, called Karahan Tepe. So let's go with the first article. The headline is, Discovery of Turkish 11,400-year-old village challenges ideas of when and why humans first settled down. The subtitle, Excavations at monumental site Karahan Tepe near the Turkish-Syrian border suggest that society was established before the dawn of agriculture. That's what we're saying. And this is by Ayla Jean Yackley, and it's from the Arts Newspaper. And a bunch of other places picked this up, and um, but this was the main one. So not the first one I saw, but I dug back into it. I'm going to quote the first line from the article. Emerging from the arid hills around Karahan Tepe is a tight-knit accumulation of domestic buildings tied into a large ritual space where tea pillars stand in silent observation. And if you know about Gobekli Tepe, then you know about the T-pillars, and we'll talk about them more later. It continues, Attached to the large communal ritual space, accessible through a crawlway is a lodge. For unknown rituals, 
that clearly feature 11 large penises cut from the bedrock and overseen by a stern masculine face. Hmm. There's actually a lot in that first line where she says, Emerging from the arid hills around Carahan Tepe is a tight-knit accumulation of domestic buildings. That's important because, see, what they've always were saying about Gebekli Tepe is that there was no domestic buildings there. That probably, maybe, possibly what happened is that the hunter-gatherers would go there to do ritualistic things. Maybe they would come, maybe it's like a barn dance, right? They'd come there once in a while and then go back to their foraging and they're living in caves and in, you know, tents and teepees type things and stuff like that. But that's because they never really found in the beginning any domestic buildings at Gobekli Tepe. But it's funny because they didn't really excavate much of it. So I don't know why they, you know, assume that, but Probably just because for hundreds of years we assumed that people were hunter-gatherers and then they became farmers. But anyway, so right off the bat they found domestic places and the ritual places. So now we say, hmm, right? And then we'll get back into the penises and stuff like that. Actually, let's get into the penises now. Let's talk about what the site looks like first. So next to this ritual lodge, there's a reservoir a cistern, you could say, cut from the rock and has water channels running off it. And there's also a faint image of a snake carved along the rim. That's very, you know, caveman-like, right, to, to, to make this reservoir with channels. And if you see it, too, I'll, I'll put the videos in the links. I mean, you could see, like, there's channels, and it's obviously made for water to be stored in there and the water to go into this. What it's for? A million things, people could say. I don't know what they're for what it was for, like what kind of ritual they did in there with 11 penises and a stern man looking at you, or even if they were penises. Maybe they're just pillars that look like penises. I mean, it's very interesting, though. That's not the most important part of the topic here. The thing is, they haven't found agriculture here. Now, in the future, as they dig out more, they may find that people had little gardens or things like that, because I think that was a thing. But full-blown agriculture, like farming, in the dawn of everything, he calls it play farming. You know, I'm sure they didn't consider it playing. They had to survive. But it's not like farming. Well, I'm a gardener. I'm a play farmer, right? I garden things. I eat. I could can stuff. I could, you know, but I'm a play farmer, right? I don't, um, I'm not a farmer. I don't have tractors. I don't have a field of wheat. You know, I'm not like, I'm at storm bushels and bushels of grain, all that kind of thing. We don't have any evidence of full-blown agriculture here. And there won't be. Like I say, they may find a little bit of um, gardening and that kind of thing, but you you won't find full-blown agriculture. So this is 1,500 years before they said that agriculture was formed and then people settled down. So this is why, you know, it's a a big deal, right? It changes what we thought. 1,500 years is a long time. Um, Quote from the article. Now we have a different view on history says Nekmi Karul, an associate professor of prehistory at Istanbul University, who is leading the dig at Karahan Tepe, a site carved into the slope of a hill on a high limestone plateau between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It continues, Our findings changed the perception, still seen in school books across the world, that settled life resulted from farming and animal husbandry. He said at a presentation of the site, This shows that it begins when humans were still hunter-gatherers and that agriculture is not a cause, but the effect of settled life. Hmm. 
Hmm. Ponder that, right? End quote, of course. And maybe you wonder, how do they know there was no farms? Well, I mean, you know, if there was a giant farm, you would see it. But there's other ways to know. First of all, these archaeologists do a lot of analysis now. They don't just like the old time guys, you know, dig in and see if they can find some gold and statues and run away with it. They study the soil. They study the pollen. They study dead bugs, what's in their bellies. I mean, they study everything. Well, another thing that's really cool that they can do is they can, because they can study what kind of things were growing there, they can... So when you clear a field, when you clear a bunch of area to to grow wheat, for example, other kind of weeds start to come in. So once there's full-blown agriculture, you know, around 8,000 B.C., it's 7,000 B.C., and where we know there's like farming communities, there's all different kinds of weeds that they find. You know, not like currently weeds. I'm talking that they they study, you know, that they're, they find it in the soil, pollen from those kind of weeds, et cetera. So at this place, they don't have that. So we know that they these guys were hunter-gatherers. So I just realized I've been talking at you guys for like 20 minutes here. And the story keeps going on and on. And so as not to turn into a Dan Carlin episode, which I'm no Dan Carlin, and Dan Carlin only gets out one episode a year, maybe two, amazing podcaster that he is, I think that I'm going to narr- close this down about Karaham Tepe and just fill in a couple of blanks that maybe I left out. So I know we talked about the monumental uh, stuff, for example, like these T-pillars, right? So what's the big deal about that? Well, they weigh many, many tons. They're like Stonehenge. So the point, you know, and this is 10,000 BC, and we're not supposed to have a stratified society. This is the important thing about what the prevailing wisdom always was about. Farming creates settled lives, creates stratified societies with rulers and specialization and things like that. Hunter-gatherers can't do that. And why this turns on its head is that for at least 1,500 years, these people that were hunter-gatherers lived like regular civilized, settled people without actually farming. And one thing they say about farming is like, who um, domesticated who? In Sapiens, he talks about how once you have farms now you're in charge of the wheat like the wheat may domesticated you you have to feed it you have to take care of it you know and you're kind of like not as free so maybe some people didn't maybe they didn't want to farm maybe they knew what it was how much it entailed and they wanted to have their more free lifestyle as as the population increased then probably farming became something more necessary we don't really know right now why exactly did they not farm for 1,500 years, and then did they start farming? The, the the point is, though, when we say about stratification and specialists, just think of what had to be done to do these, to move these pillars. Somebody had to quarry them. They had to get a bunch of guys together, and I could say guys. I think mostly they would have had the men move these things, you know, and there was women had to do their jobs, but not like just a band of 50 people. We're talking about, you know, a village of people had different things. The people who were carving the pillars... Did they also have to go out and hunt deer and that kind of thing? And so I think the point is here with Karaham Tepe and this whole constellation of sites in Turkey today, which, by the way, is uh, becoming a major tourist site, which if anybody wants to uh, send me a bunch of money and send me there, that would be awesome. The point is, it wasn't farming that set up civilization as we know it. It wasn't farming that set up 
settled life. It wasn't farming that set up stratification and income equality. It was, but <laughs> what was it? Well, it wasn't farming. Basically, like they say, it turns it on its head. I guess it was just settled life in general that started that, and then it led to farming, and it goes from there. There's really a lot that could be talked about on this topic, about farming and the beginning of civilization and things, because it's happened differently in different parts of the world, and it really is a big topic. So what I think is what we'll do is, maybe we'll come back to this sometimes, and if you're interested in it as well, maybe we could talk about some of the other sites. You know, if somebody tells me, I'm really interested in this constellation of sites in in Turkey, because it's basically a what's new. It's it's newer than I knew, and when I graduated college, and it's it's still new to a lot of people. So so if you want, we could talk about that. So I'm going to wrap it up about Karahim Tepe, and then let's just talk about this other site because it's part of the constellation of sites, and it's uh it's just more of a cool story about what they kind of art they have there. Again, these you know hunter gatherers are creating this really interesting art. So, should we talk about that? But first, we have a word from our sponsor. Which sponsor? Marduk's Mattress Emporium or Table of Gods? Let's throw it out to Table of Gods. Our good friend Aram, last I read, he took a trip to Iraq. He's brewing beer. He's getting the working on the getting the book published. And he's also now a pretty darn good YouTuber. I got to say, his YouTube videos are fantastic. Covers a lot of the uh, Syrian stuff that we covered in the podcast. So definitely check out Table of Gods. And if you get a chance, you can go to Marduk's Mattress Warehouse. Marduk's Mattress Emporium, I should say. If you want to make love like a god, Marduk's Mattress Emporium. All right. This next article is actually what kicked off this whole idea for me to do this episode. So I hope you'll like it because it's got drama, it's got danger, it's got nudity, and a six-fingered man. Now, I'm pretty sure it's not the six-fingered man, but it is a six-fingered man. And this this is really new because this was in 2021. They first started finding this stuff, and they just started getting articles on this now. And there's kind of clickbaity articles, but it is pretty cool. It was in 2021 that an archaeologist from Istanbul University, with a hard-to-pronounce name, but I'm going to try it. It looks like Ilam Osgodan, and I'm sorry if I killed your name. Uh, They began excavating in this town called Seyburk. It's about 35 kilometers north of the border of Turkey and Syria. It's in Turkey. And they had heard that people, when they dig ditches and stuff in the in the in the you know, the town there, they would find these Neolithic artifacts and stuff. So they went and started looking, and they started finding some artifacts too. And before they knew it, they uncovered a circular building, like the kinds they would find at Gebekli Tepe and Karim Tepe, and they were pretty excited, obviously. And they exposed part of it. They can't continue digging it because it's on top of, like, people's houses. They still, like, live in the houses. But they are, the Turkish government's really pretty amazing on their archaeology because they are basically buying up the houses and they're going to, you know, excavate the whole site. So they found this really amazing carving. And the the articles will say, this is the first example of narrative scene. It was the first narrative scene ever seen in history, that kind of thing. Because there's obviously something going on. It's not like just like a vulture carved on there or like a snake 
or a, a penis or something like that. There's a story going on. And what the story is, it's a carving and it, it's a bench. And you, like I say, it goes under these other houses so you can't see it all. So we can't really be sure what is you probably can't be sure what it is anyway, but if you know, you can't definitely can't see the whole thing because it's, some of it's covered. But what there is is there's well, we got the six fingered man. Like I said, probably not the six fingered man. He doesn't look like the six fingered man that I know. But he is uh, squatting, and he's holding. It looks like it's either a snake or a rattle, and he's he's shaking it at a at a bull. At a because bulls were wild in these days. That was one of the things they would have hunted, and. Then in the next scene, and it's right next to each other, right? I'll post the links. And maybe some of you guys have seen this. The other scene, I, I'm going to have to just quote this for you. Ready? Osgodon says, in the other scene, two leopards flank a person depicted facing forward and clutching an erect penis. And what Osgodon calls an indifferent stance in the face of danger. Hmm. So it's definitely... <laughs> A guy, you could see him, he's standing there, he's holding it, and there's two leopards, like, on either side of him. So, who knows what it means. But what's interesting, too, is the leopards and even the six-fingered man are kind of more, like, relief-carved, where the man holding his penis is really, like, sculptured in 3D outside of the, the thing. So, he's definitely a focal point. I've listened to some discussions on this topic i've i've watched some videos on it and what one of the ones i saw that i thought was probably one of the best descriptions of what that could be is well we don't know what it is but it's good chance and i could agree with this is probably right is it's part of a story that somebody else already knew in other words you wouldn't just go look at this thing and go oh i see what's happening the six-fingered man is doing this and this and this it's more like if you saw a picture of humpty dumpty and you saw like an egg sitting on there and some you know, horses, men, and all the king's horses and all the men around there, you kind of know the story, right? If you see Little Red Riding Hood and a wolf and a thing, you know, like, you couldn't get the story from just seeing the picture. But if you knew the story, and human beings are storytellers. We've been storytellers for a long... This is 10,000 BC. We were probably storytellers 40,000 years before that. You know, they would tell stories by the fire and tell stories and all. And then this is most likely you know, an image of that story that you would have known. Like if it was a religious thing, you know, if you saw, you know, the Stations of the Cross, you wouldn't know the whole story of Jesus. But if you knew Jesus and you saw them, then you knew what it is. So I, I kind of go with that. So we'll probably never know exactly what it is. But, you know, a lot of people have different thoughts about, you know, it shows that, like, we're not afraid of animals anymore. You know, we're, we're above the animals. We're not scared. There's these leopards coming at me and I'll just stand here holding my, you know, maybe I'll just take a pee out in the woods. Maybe I'm taking a pee and a bunch of leopards came. You know, we're just not sure. But it's it's really a beautiful piece of artwork and um, super interesting, super interesting time frame, super interesting period of history, super interesting, this archaeology that's going on there. You could tour it. I mean, it's um, Gobekli Tepe is a UNESCO world site now. And so there's a tour. Here's a headline for a tour. UNESCO Archaeological sites revealing giant phalluses and cult rooms. Come and go, come, everybody. But I mean, seriously, that would really be a cool tour for me. I mean, who doesn't want to go on a tour with giant phalluses and cult rooms, right? So, like I said before, there's a lot we can talk about with this, and I would love it if you guys want to hear more about it. One last thing I will say about the this being the first piece of narrative art 
I totally disagree with that because we have cave paintings from 20,000 years before that, you know, I should say 20,000 years ago. And, well, yeah, we have cave paintings from 40,000 B.C., 40,000 years ago. I mean, I think they could be considered narrative works of art. There's, You know, you see herds of bison or you find a man falls down and there's a dead buffalo next to him. So people have been telling stories and they've been, you know, doing this, but... Those days they were in caves and they were hiding in caves, but now they're controlling their environment. They're building. These things are made of stone. There's, you know, they must, they have stone masons and carvers and there's different types of people and there's specialization. So like I said, it really turns on its head. So that I don't ramble on and on, I'm going to close with a quote from the dawn of humanity. And before that, I do want to thank all our sponsors, all our Patreons. I really appreciate you guys. Here's the last quote from The Dawn of Humanity. A founding block in that old edifice of human evolution was the allocation of a specific place in history for foraging societies, which was to be the prelude to an agricultural revolution that supposedly changed everything about the course of history. The job of foragers in this conventional narrative is to be all that farming is not, and thus also to explain, by implication, what farming is. If farmers are sedentary... Foragers must be mobile. If farmers actively produce food, foragers must merely collect it. If farmers have private property, foragers must renounce it. And if farming societies are unequal, this is by contrast with the innate egalitarianism of foragers. Finally, if a particular group of foragers should happen to possess any such features in common with farmers, the dominant narrative demands that these can only be incipient, emergent, or deviant in nature, so that the destiny of foragers is either to evolve into farmers or eventually to wither and die. Clearly, it no longer makes any sense to use phrases like the agricultural revolution when dealing with processes of such inordinate length and complexity. Stop in here for a second. Like we said, 1,500 years just in this one area. All right, 1,500 years, they were settled down, foragers. 1,500 years is about 75 generations. So that's a long time. Anyway, I continue. And since there was no Eden-like state from which the first farmers could take their first steps on the road to inequality, it makes even less sense to talk about agriculture as marking the origins of social rank, inequality, or private property. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It actually went longer than I thought it would, and I didn't even put as much stuff as I wanted to put in here. So I would really appreciate if you have any comments. If you said, Bernie, you didn't tell us enough about this. Bernie, tell us more about this. Bernie, I don't want to know about this crap. Anything like that. Again, I appreciate you all. I appreciate the Patreons. I appreciate our new Patreon, Tim Holmes, who is a local Scranton person, and he's our newest Patreon. Thank you, Tim. And... If you could check out our Facebook page, you can make comments on there. You can message me there. If you have any ideas for fan of history or for, I should say, what's new in history, because fan of history, we know what we do there. We count back the decades. Um, but what's new in history could be just about anything. So I'm also looking for some help with some the script writing. Co-hosting would be really cool. So if you're interested in any of that, that's how I got into this. I heard Dan say he wanted to have some co-hosts in there. Here we are. Now you're stuck with me sometimes. But I again, I appreciate you guys. 
I would love to hear from you. And that's all. Cheers. Bernie out. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fan of history. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.